a few are that I think that are co commonly coming up, at least in the conversations I've had, is the need to understand something about the phenotype of the virus based on the sequence of the virus and whether we're talking about OR5 or whole genome. And, um, and I, I just want to reiterate, like, the science isn't quite there yet. So we are making progress, uh, I think, particularly on, on starting to understand a little bit better about cross-protection between different strains. Um, we, we can st we're starting to be able to hone in on specific, you know, amino acid changes or, or a group of specific amino acids that we know that if, if the virus changes at that point may mean something more about um, whether two viruses will cross-protect against each other. Swine. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Odiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Hello everyone, I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's SwineIt podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Kim Vanderwall, who's an associate professor at the University of Minnesota. Kim, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you on today, Kim. Um, some of our audience may not be familiar with you and your background. So maybe we'll just take a couple of minutes here to start with having you give a little bit more of an introduction about who you are. Sure, I'd be happy to. So my research um, as, a, as an associate professor here at the University of Minnesota um, has really focused on how viruses spread through animal populations. And for the past uh, five years, I've been focusing mainly on PERS. Um, the types of research that we're interested in exploring is, is how the virus is able to move from farm to farm. And as I got deeper and deeper into uh, PERS epidemiology, I started to realize you cannot understand the epidemiology of this disease without starting to understand how it's evolving, how the immunity of the host is um, playing into how the virus is able to spread, and how immunity may actually drive the evolution of the virus. So a lot of the research that uh, we're working on right now is really focused on the evolution of PERS through time, how it has diversified into different subtypes or, or sublineages through time, and how or what, what is driving that immunity. And once we start to understand those factors, then we hopefully can translate that to what that would mean for understanding how the virus is, is spreading and able to persist in, in swine populations. This episode's sponsored highlight is about cloud farms. Did you know that you can improve productivity across all your farms using real-time data? With a user-friendly app and a secure cloud-based solution, Cloud Farms provides real-time reporting for your entire team from anywhere. Our benchmarking farm-to-farm -farm analysis allows you to make data-driven decisions to meet your company's goals, providing only the best for all types of pig production. If you want to take your company to the next level, go to www.cloudfarms.com. Great. 
And I think this will be a really interesting conversation today because um, we've had a, a series of conversations lately about PERS, and, and certainly we see that the PERS virus has been changing over the last few years in terms of it no longer appears to just be a winter disease that we had some persist through summer last year. And, and so there's a lot of questions around what is changing with that virus, um, even from a pathogenistic standpoint. Um, maybe what we'll start with really kind of goes back to um, the naming of the strains, if you will. When I think of PERS, you know, we'll say, oh, well, this is the 144 strain or this is the 174 strain. Um, maybe let's start there and, and help our audience understand how we actually take a PERS virus and put it into some type of classification. Yeah, so um, I'd like to, to direct that question to, to RFLP types because that's the um, virus typing or the naming scheme that has been used for the longest period of time, at least in the U.S., and um, this is a way to basically try to categorize the virus into uh, basically groups or named strains, for example. And um, historically, they developed this technique really so that they could tell the difference between the vaccine-related viruses that would be introduced to the population after or when you vaccinate your pigs from the wild-type viruses, which are the viruses that are just freely circulating and are, would be expected to be associated with, with clinical outbreaks. Um, so when this, this conundrum of, of differentiating the viruses first came up, but this was the late 1990s, and at that point, sequencing wasn't really a widespread technology that was you know, available for the way we use sequencing today. And so they, the, um, the labs came up, or the diagnostic labs came up with this way to actually be able to different, differentiate vaccine virus from the wild-type viruses, and that was RFLPs. Um, and basically, it, it's based on taking the, the OR5 portion of the genome, which is a basically a spe specific portion of the genome, and um, in the lab, what they would do is they would put an enzyme that would bind to certain motifs in the, the genome and cut the, that um, fragment of DNA into basically smaller fragments, which then you could tell apart when you do some different lab procedures. Now, um, pretty quickly after that was first developed to discriminate a vaccine virus, um, then it started being used to just start naming different variants of the virus that were being seen in the field. Um, and that's how we've been basically using it ever since. Um, and unfortunately, right now, there's there's been a lot of ambiguities that have been um, introduced by using this RFLP type system um, in the, the current uh, landscape. And I'm sure we're going to get into some of those. Yeah. I, um, before we do, maybe just explain what RFLP stands for. Yes. So RFLP stands for restriction fragment length polymorphism. So the um, so the, when I talk about the restriction enzyme, that is the enzyme that we're putting into our basically our our um, RNA sample, and that's actually what's cutting the the DNA or RNA into fragments. So that's where the restriction enzyme comes in, and then the length polymorphism just means that it's going to create different fragments after you cut it so that are different sizes. So it's just saying that there's variation in the sizes of fragments that are going to be cut once we put these enzymes in. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you hear a lot in the field as well. The cut pattern of this strain or this virus was this, and the cut pattern at this farm was this. And so that's really what you're referring to is this RFLP and and how that enzyme cuts into the DNA and creates fragments. Is that correct? That's right. And now because we do sequencing, we don't still, or the lab is not putting these enzymes into the samples now anymore to to generate the cut patterns. They can look at the actual sequence and look for where the enzyme would bind if you had done that, you know, um, procedure and then say, well, this is the result that you would get for the cut pattern. But we don't actually do that process anymore. We just infer it from the the sequence data and knowing that we can look for where that specific pattern would occur. Okay. Yeah. So that's actually very useful. So we know then that we're not actually doing the cut pattern anymore, but we still reference it. So it's older terminology. Um, even though we replaced it with newer technology. So let's jump into that disadvantage then. Why why is it a disadvantage to continue to use the terminology RFLP and, and that mindset? Yeah, so the, the, the disadvantage of RFLPs is that there's a lot of ambiguity in how to interpret them. So there's one of two things that generally happen. So generally, people are using RFLP types because they want to know if this the two viruses they have are the same or are they different. And the issue that you have, well, the scenario one, is that you have a virus and then you have a second virus and you get sequences on both. And if a mutation happens to occur in one of the, the portions that or the patterns that the enzyme is going to bind to, um, then now it's going to be a new cut pattern or a different cut pattern. So those viruses could potentially be very, very similar, 99.5% similar or more. Um, but because the, the, that change happened to occur in that particular spot, we're now going to call them something completely different. And so now you might be doing the wrong sort of management decisions because you are interpreting that you have two different viruses and they're the same. Um, Now, the flip side of that is it's also very common to have viruses that are actually very dissimilar, but just happen to have the same cut pattern, and then they're now given the same RFLP type. So now you have two viruses, and you're interpreting that they're the same, and they're actually different. Um, So that could be a new introduction or, you know, something like that. So so again, you could end up making the, the wrong management decision just by looking at the RFLP type alone. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what would be a different way then of of going forward if we're not going to use RFLPs? How would we start to classify these viruses to better understand if they're similar or not similar? Yes. Yeah, so something that um, we've been working on is this uh, lineage-based classification system. So it's it's was originally proposed in 2010 where they looked across all of the the PERS type 2 viruses, which is the, the species that we have predominantly in the U.S., and they were able to look at essentially the, the ancestral tree of the virus and said that there's nine major groups or major ancestral families based on the OR5 gene um, and called these lineages 1 through 9. So, um, but these groups are very, very large, and in the last 10 years, so since 2010, um, most of the viruses um, 
have been what we would call lineage one. Um, so there's need to further subdivide lineage one to really account for the fact that, that this particular lineage has really taken hold in the U.S. and diversified immensely um, through the past you know, 10 to 15 years. So within lineage one, we can now just start defining sublineages. And so again, these are based on the, these kind of ancestral families based on, again, the OR5 gene. Um, now, if we think about what, what the average practitioner is actually trying to use RFLPs for, so, is that they want to be able to differentiate you know, a new introduction of a virus onto their farm or uh, discriminate between a, a vaccine and the, their current virus. And, and unfortunately, even sublineages, they're still large groups. So if, if um, you get back from the lab and you, they say you have a lineage 1A virus, um, which is the, the sublineage that includes most of the, the RFLBP types 174, um, that's a big group of viruses. And so, um, and it's probably too big to really get at that question as, is, are my two wild type viruses in my farm or on my system the same or different? So still these sublineages are, are too large. And so right now people are still falling back a little bit on RFLPs to try to get at that, that question that they're really trying to get at is, is my, or the two viruses I have, are they the same or are they different? Yeah, I think that's what's what intrigues me too. A lot of times is we'll hear that conversation of, oh, well, this farm broke with 174 and here were the clinical symptoms and or signs of, of the farm being ill. And then we go over here to this farm who also has a 174 and their clinical signs are completely different. Maybe it's not as, as much of a, we call it a sow mortality virus, but maybe it's a baby pig mortality virus. And so would switching this over into more of the lineages and the sublineages help us better understand pathogenicity and virulency of these viruses? Or is that something that we're still kind of left in the middle with when we start thinking about classification? Because I know as a producer, that's really what I want to know is, am I going to see what my neighbor saw down the road if I get, quote, the same strain that he gets? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a few parts of that question. Um, and the first is most of the classification that we're doing is based on this OR5 gene. And it's an important gene. We know that it plays a role in immunity, but it's certainly not the sole gene in the, the PERS um, genome that plays a role in, in immunity. Um, and so, so there's a reason that we have looked at it historically. Um, but the fact is, is that the phenotype or how that virus is going to behave in your farm is determined by a lot more than just this little OR5 segment, which is just 4% of the whole genome. So one could argue, okay, well, if we do whole genome sequences, then we'll be able to say something about the virulence or the, the immunological protection. And unfortunately, that may give us a better idea, but uh, I, our knowledge is just not there yet to really be able to look at a sequence, even a whole genome sequence, and say, oh, I see it's got, you know, this here and that there and this here, and that means it's going to be virulent. Um, we are really not there on the science. Um, so right now, our purpose of classification classification of viruses is, is more for an epidemiological purpose than trying to understand the phenotype. Um, the flip side of your question um, was, you know, there are certain uh, groups of viruses that have the reputation of being particularly virulent. 
Um, so for like the 174 viruses, when they first emerged in around 2014, you know, those were considered to be highly virulent. Um, now we have the L1C144 variant also considered highly virulent. And um, the, the challenge here too is that, that the virus doesn't always behave in the same way at every farm or every population. So even if you were able to say, this virus, because of its sequence, has these virulent properties, that doesn't seem to be a universal you know, translation. In all cases, it'll act virulent. And, and probably it's because there's a lot of things going on with the host. Um, and there's a lot of things going on with co-infections that might be going on with that same population. And all of these things are interacting to produce the the you know apparent virulence that we're seeing from these viruses. So I don't think it's that virulence is solely the property of the virus's genetic code. It's 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 determined by these external you know host factors as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, right? And it's, it's something I learned in virology class was all it takes is a single base pair mutation, and right, it changes the way the protein folds on the cell surface. So now we either have something that's more brilliant or less brilliant, and and so it, it definitely does go beyond, you know, just saying its sequence is similar um, to really know that brilliance factor. So I think that's a, a very good point. And as you stated, this is really this whole process, this whole discussion that we're having today about the RFLP or sequencing or, or whatever piece we're doing is to help us understand the epidemiology so that we can essentially trace where this virus or how this virus has moved through populations, whether it's an internal population or from farm to farm, et cetera. So from a veterinarian's perspective, should we continue to use RFLPs? Is there a need to do that? So that's a loaded question. Um, we just did a survey um, of U.S. swine veterinarians and other stakeholders, and that was put out through um, AASV. And we got about 90 responses to basically, with the, the questions were really targeted at, at how veterinarians are using sequence data in their, their practice. And um, there was two interesting pieces that I think really came out of that um, survey for me. And one is, what is the main purpose that that a veterinarian is trying to name viruses for. And by and large, the, the dominant reason that they want to have something to name a virus is that um, they want to be able to discriminate between a um, or two different wild type strains that are occurring in a farm or a system. And they want it to be easy. Of course, using a phylogenetic tree is great and going and getting everyone's sequences and building the tree is great. But, um, you know, that takes time, um, even more time if you're having to do it maybe with your neighbor that's maybe not to your same system and you have to try to compile everyone's data and do the analysis. So they want something quick and easy to just say, oh, what do you have? What do I have? Is it the same thing or not? Um, and so that's why that's how people are using RFLPs and or trying to use them for, for better or worse. <laughs> um, and. So should we do away with them? Um, do we have an alternative that would serve the same purpose? And right now we don't. Um, but interestingly, the, the other piece I learned from that survey is that we asked them a question, should we do away with RFLPs? And by and large, 
the majority answer was yes, we should. Um, they were given an op or opportunity to say no, um, and they are not given an opportunity to say maybe. Um, and uh, the majority answer was was yes, we're ready to move on from RFLPs. So, um, but it's very important that we have an alternative in place that can actually serve the purpose that RFLPs have been serving us and maybe serve us better if they, they don't have some of the, the same disadvantages that we see with the RFLP types. So based on what you're saying, then what I can, what I'm understanding then is the veterinarian community would consider getting rid of the RFLPs and we're talking about them potentially moving on to something like using the lineages and sublineages that you talked about earlier as that new classification, or is there another classification process that we haven't talked about yet today? Yeah, so one alternative that is starting to be more widely used is to use the lineage in combination with the, um, with the RFLP type. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, lineages and sublineages are still pretty big groups of viruses. So if, if you have, you know, two viruses that are classified as the same sublineage, they could still be 7% different. So they're just a little bit too big. Um, but if you add that RFLP type in there, you can kind of narrow that in at least a little bit. And at the same time, if you are using RFLPs by itself, sometimes you get RFLPs that clearly the viruses are not the same lineage. They're, you know, 10, 12% different from each other. But if you narrow it to say, okay, we're only going to consider it to be, you know, the same if it has the same RFLP type and the same lineage, um, that can help hone in a little bit better than, um, than just using either by itself. But it's still not perfect. And this, this L1C144 variant that's circulating around, that's an example where using these two systems in combination does allow you to be more precise. But there are still a lot of viruses that are have the L1C designation and the 144 type um, that actually aren't part of that outbreak. And when you start looking at the genetic distance, they're not that closely related. So it's still a little bit imperfect to, to use those um, in combination like that. Mm -hmm. oh, that's perfect. Well, that's actually very informative and, and hopefully gives the audience a little bit of something to think about, particularly as they're talking to their veterinarians or uh, veterinarians that are in the field and thinking about how to better classify or better understand uh, what they're working with or what they're looking at. So Kim, as we kind of wrap up our conversation today, are there a few key points or key takeaways that you would really like the audience to, to again, think about or, or, you know, walk away and start acting upon in their own facilities? Yes. Um, a few are that I think that are co commonly coming up, at least in the conversations I've had is the need to understand something about the phenotype of the virus based on the sequence of the virus and whether we're talking about OR5 or whole genome. And, um, and I, I just want to reiterate, like the science isn't quite there yet. So we are making progress, uh, I think, particularly on, on starting to understand a little bit better about cross protection between different strains. Um, we, we can, st we're starting to be able to hone in on specific 
you know, amino acid changes or, or a group of specific amino acids that we know that if, if the virus changes at that point may mean something more about um, whether two viruses will cross protect against each other. Um, but right now, we are not quite at the stage that whether we look at whole genome or OR5, that we can really predict a phenotype for a virus. So I think that when we start talking about naming strains, we need to be careful on whether or not we're assigning some sort of attribute or characteristic to that strain, because it is it's a very complicated thing to do. Um, one of the other things I would like to uh, emphasize, I guess, is that we need to remember that RFLPs are very imperfect. They are old technology, and we are still using the, the terminology, and, and we do have better technological tools. So maybe we should consider, you know, updating how we classify our our different, you know, subtypes of this virus um, using new tools. Um, RFLP types have been long recognized to have a lot of um, of challenges in their interpretation, and and I think any veterinarian that's had to deal with PERS um, has knows that first firsthand. So, um, you know, it's it's certainly um, an area I think that we need to continue uh, pursuing. Like, how can we improve the situation to give veterinarians better tools to be able to go out there and um, and categorize and classify these viruses as they're trying to make these management decisions. Perfect. Those are great key points for our audience to, to take home and think about today. It is time to our famous three. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high healthy registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Ivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Um, as we wrap up our time, Kim, we always like to ask our guest speakers a couple of common questions across all of them just so that um, our audience has a few other interesting things to take away from our podcast. The first one we like to ask is, is there a, a swine resource, or even since this isn't all necessarily related to swine, some reference material that would help our audience get a better understanding of what we were discussing today? Um, yes, so probably the best resource or the most up-to-date one on um basically the classification of PERS viruses, a paper by Poploski um, in 2021, and that's in the, the journal Vaccines. And so this uh, is the paper where we introduced the sublineages that are now being utilized by the, um, the veterinary diagnostic laboratories. And it also talks a little bit about, you know, um, classification, how this compares to RFLPs and that sort of thing as well. So I think that that would be the, the best resource to to learn more about, you know, how we classify viruses, why we're classifying viruses. And we also talk about, um, 
the potential um, differences between these different sublineages that that potentially are, are immune related. Yeah, and I think that's great, especially for our audience. You know, as we continue to talk about human viruses and so forth, again, it, it just gives them a better understanding of of how the the virology community is viewing and discussing viruses and the strains associated with each with each virus. Um, the other question we like to ask really comes down to a little bit more on the, the personal side. If there's a book or a resource that you would recommend to the audience that's maybe not related to pigs or, or in this case, viruses. Uh, yeah, so uh, I guess my, my best advice is, as a researcher is to uh, uh, read widely. Um, don't just read about your particular study system, whether that's PERS or pigs or something like that, because, you know, when you start getting, I think some of the best ideas come in from when we're able to cross-pollinate from, from other disciplines and see what they're doing and see how that could improve what we're doing. So, so being too narrow in your focus can really, I think, kind of pigeonhole us into doing the same things that we've always been doing rather than, you know, taking inspiration from, from what others are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. It's absolutely true. Well, the last question we ask is, if you could think about somebody then in your life that you viewed as successful, and again, you can think about success however you want to define it, is there a trait that stands out to you that they possess that you think has allowed them to be successful? Yes. Yeah, so I think when I look across various people in my life that have been mentors to me or that I, you know, perceive as successful, I think, I think a lot of them, they they maintain a good work-life balance. And I think part of that, I mean, everyone says they want work-life balance, but I think that, that, that you have to be able to compartmentalize things in your brain. Um, so that's that when you go home or when you go into a, a social interaction, even with a, a coworker, that you're actually able to separate the work out from the, um, the life aspects and, and not let you know, um, work, permeate into to all of your interactions and become too much of focus. And at the same time, I think that that's being able to compartmentalize some of your home life, you know, um, that can, your home life has its own set of challenges. Um, of course, it does bring balance, but but it's not always um, uh, things that are always going smoothly there either, right? And so be able to also kind of compartmentalize that. So then when you're at work, you can actually be present and um, and do the, the job that you need to do. So so I think that um, the, the direction for work-life balance goes both ways for keeping both areas successful and fulfilling. That's great advice. That's one we haven't heard in a while, but something that's so critical for everybody um, in whatever field, career path they're on, for sure. Well, Kim, we do want to thank you again for your time today. For our audience, this is Dr. Kim Vanderwall, an associate professor at the University of Minnesota. Kim, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Laura. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas.
Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.